thank you for your donation to Corbono, a nonprofit organization dedicated to the study of Scripture according to the mind of the Catholic Church. If you like this talk, we invite you to share our website, www.corbono.com, with others so that together we may participate in the evangelization of the third millennium. Our speaker, Najim Awad, lives in San Diego, California with his wife and seven children and has been studying and teaching scripture since 1995. Najib believes the Catholic Church holds and teaches the fullness of truth, and with his tremendous zeal and insight, he is able to communicate that raw truth without sugarcoating the teachings of the Catholic Church. He also believes that our job is not to change the truth, but to communicate it clearly and directly to others. And now, here's Najib. Tonight we continue our study of the book of Leviticus. Uh, by way of a refresh, we have covered three sacrifices so far, three offerings rather, right? And these three offerings essentially allow, the first one, the Ola, the Holocaust, allow a person or the nation to be present before God. The second, a gift offering, and then there's the grain offering. Both of, these, both of these offerings, as we've seen before, are specifically to thank God or to essentially offer God a shared meal. We've already said that none of these offerings, and the ones we're going to see later is the expiation, are used to expiate a voluntary sin. They don't have that power. They're only for involuntary uh, reasons, things that were done without attention, without care, or by ignorance. So I thought that before we move on in the rest of the book, it is good, it would be really good for us to look at these laws of offerings in the light of Christ. Because, as you know, Scripture must be interpreted in the light of all of Scripture. So, we're going to take a little detour tonight through some passages in the New Testament that highlight or shed light on Leviticus to help us ground it in, a, in the plan of God, to better understand what the purpose of this book is. Last time, we ended by looking at two interpretive keys, and I'd like to mention them again one more time tonight. First one is from Genesis 8.20. 22. It is the passage where Noah built an altar to thank God after the end of the flood, and he offered a whole burnt, a holocaust offering. And what we see is that he only offered clean animals, presumably because those are the animals that he, that were domesticated, and those are the animals who are really the fruit, or the, if you will, the sweat of his brow. At the end of the day, you offer something that means something to you, that has value to you. And Noah did that. The offering was thought to be a soothing aroma to God in Genesis 8.21, which is an expression that is found frequently before Leviticus. Right? And by the way, 
when we use incense in the church, right? if you notice, I mean, let me ask this question to see how many of you are actually awake during Mass. Just kidding. What does the priest incense? The altar. What else? Crucifix. What else? The gospel and the offering and the people. Uh, the priest does not incense himself. Yes. But I'm asking about what the priest does. Why does the priest incense the gospel? It's the word of God. True. Absolutely. It is the word of God. But why does he incense the book? Prayers go to heaven. There is no prayer at this point, right? He hasn't read it. He incenses it before he reads. Why does he do that? Sign of reverence. But why would, assuming that's the case, which is not the case, but let's assume it's the case. Why incense the book? Okay, you're getting closer. The word of God is alive. Yes. Yes? Part of the sacrifice. Yes, but why is it part of the sacrifice? Yeah. It's not a book. We're not there to watch or hear a book. You get it? We're incensing the Son of God, the one who is a pleasing aroma to the Father because of His sacrifice. When you hear the reading, you're not hearing a book. That's why the priest proclaims the gospel, because it is Jesus Christ proclaiming the gospel to us. Yeah? Okay. He incenses the altar because the altar also represents the cross and Christ. Why does he incense us? Because we're being blessed, right? Ah, no, no, no. That's too easy, Rich. You're right, you're right, you're right. I'm, you're absolutely right. But is it just to bless us? So we're getting the good stuff? Is that it? Why are we being incensed? Well, it goes up to heaven, yeah. But what goes up to heaven? Back to Leviticus. I'm not asking you these questions out of context here. The sacrifice. So what are you? Yeah, that's why you're being incensed. You have to be a pleasing aroma before the Lord. That's why you're being incensed. So are you? Are you celebrating Mass? Or are you just there? We're going to come back to that. All right. So St. Augustine tells us, again, this is from last time, that the sacrifice was revealed to acknowledge God as creator and master of life and death. Right? To recall blessings on us and our ancestors, to excite our devotion, to keep us from idolatry, and to foretell the sacrifice of Christ. So it's a multifaceted meaning to that sacrifice. Multifaceted. Therefore, it would be good for us to look a little bit more into the New Testament and follow that somewhat. And before I actually go to the Old Testament, the, Old, the New Testament, there's one more thing we're going to look at, which is Psalm um, 50, I believe. I think I got the number right. Maybe 40. I need to check. But let me write, read it to you. The Mighty One, God the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. Our God comes. He does not keep silence before Him is a devouring fire, round about him a mighty tempest. He calls to the heavens above and to the earth, that he may judge his people. So we can see already imagery from Exodus, when God came upon the mountain. Although this is Mount Zion. 
right? Not Mount Sinai. We move from Mount Sinai to Mount Zion. That movement the fathers have always seen to be earth to heaven, Old Testament to New Testament, right? There's, there's that imagery that is here. In the Old Testament, that always represents Jerusalem. Mount Zion represents Jer- Jerusalem. Although there's some discussion that the temple was never built on Mount Zion, but Christ was crucified on Mount Zion. So therefore, it is really the New Testament. We're not going to go there. Keep, keep that in mind. It's sort of interesting. Now, gather to me my faithful ones, this is the Lord speaking, who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. The heavens declare his righteousness, for God himself is judge. Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. So it's a judgment, it's a covenantal judgment that God, as a judge, is leading. And, by the way, if you want to have a flavor for your own personal judgment, reread the psalm. So the moral reading here would be a very good reflection, right? I will testify against you. I am God, your God. I do not reprove you for your sacrifices. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. I will accept no bull from your house, nor he goat from your folds. For every beast of the forest is mine. The the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the air, and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, For the world and all that is in it is mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Now this is really key. What did he reject so far? All this offering we talked about, he rejects. The one he insists on is this one offering. The offering of thanksgiving. Right? By the way, how do you say thanksgiving in the Greek? Eucharistos, thanksgiving. Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Okay, we're going to talk about that a little bit later. And pay your vows to, to the Most High. And call upon me in a day of trouble. Three things. Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Pay your tribute to the Most High and call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. Right? So, pay your vows, not tribute, I'm sorry, to the Most High and call upon me in a day of trouble. Three things. Sacrifice of thanksgiving. Pay your vows. Call upon me. In the context of Leviticus, what does it mean to pay your vows? What are you supposed to do? You're supposed to make sure that the Levitical priesthood, the temple, are taken care of. That's how you pay your vows to God. Literally. You take care of His representative on earth. That's how you pay your vows to God. And call upon me in a day of trouble. This one, this one in particular, this verse 15, I think is key. It is key to Leviticus. And we'll see that again a little later. To the wicked, God says, What right have you to recite my statutes or take my covenant on your lips? For you hate discipline and you cast my words behind you. 
you hate discipline and you cast my word behind you. Right? The moral and the theological. You don't want to be disciplined and you don't listen to my word. But to the ones who follow him, he asks three things. A sacrifice of thanksgiving, pay your vows, and call upon him in a day of trouble. Let's take each one in turn. What is a sacrifice of thanksgiving? We've seen that already. What, but what is it? What is it in your own term? What is a sacrifice of thanksgiving? Offer a mass. Yes, but no. Okay, very good. Something that means a lot to you, you give it to God. But why are you giving it to God? You show that you love Him. So you're giving it to God, not because you're expecting something in. You're giving it to God just because you love Him. That's a sacrifice of thanksgiving. See, we, many of us, if we're hit by something hard, a hardship or whatever, we pick up the rosary, we start praying it, we ask for, we ask for the intercession of the saints, we go to Mass, we do all these wonderful things, and that's wonderful, this is great. I'm not, don't, don't think it's a criticism, not at all. It's wonderful that we do those things. A lot of people don't even do that. That's good. But it's a little bit of a utilitarian relationship with God. It'd be like, I would only talk to my wife when I'm hungry. That's it. No other reason. Or if I need something, I'll go talk to her. But if I'm content, I ate, and I'm satisfied, I don't have to talk to her. We treat God like that. So notice, offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Why is he insistent on that? Because this is the language of love. If we don't train ourselves in offering sacrifices to God just to say thank you, then we don't train in love. Okay? Then pay your vows to the Most High. So it's not enough to say thank you. You said thank you, right? You sacrificed something, but do your duty towards God. Do what you must. Support His church. Tithe. Then whatever your state of life you're in, do it to, you, to the best of your abilities. You're just paying your vows to God. This is not sanctity. This is just doing your duty. That's all there is to it. Because when you do that, you're showing God you're serious. You know who He is, and you know who you are. Now we've established a loving relationship, but a relationship that is rooted in truth. The truth of God and my truth. Who am I and who He is. It isn't one where I put God on my same level, we're buddy-buddy, right? No, 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 no. Okay? And then, call upon me in the days of trouble. Now, going back to what we talked about, you call upon God. Yeah? And here's the surprising thing. Here's the surprising thing. We simply don't call upon God enough. We don't. Because typically we think about calling upon God, right, in, the, in a state of crisis. When there's something we cannot handle, right, then we call upon God. And the implicit assumption we make is that we can handle. But the reality is we can handle nothing at all. 
So most of our life, the majority of the events of our life, those usual things, combing our hair, getting dressed, driving a car, getting to work, getting a drink of water, walking. Where's God? We can do it because we can do it. You see? We're going to get back to that because it's really essential to this reading on, on the book of Leviticus. Okay. St. Paul says the same. Now we're switching to the New Testament. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 2. If I deliver my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. The love that St. Paul is talking about isn't romantic love. It is a liturgical love. It is a love rooted in the entire tradition of Israel. When we speak of love in the language of St. Paul, we're not talking about individual love. We're not talking about love according to my own rule. We're talking about love that was revealed by God to Israel. Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving. That's what's implied in that love. Not about my feelings. It's about what I'm doing towards God. I gain nothing. So the sweet aroma of the burnt offering, of all offering, is made in the giving of self in love. And that is why you're incensed. So you have to remember this. When the priest incenses you, the thing that should come to your mind is, am I, am I, is my life offered to God? Am I offering my life to God? Have I done that this week? That's a good moment to have a quick examination of conscience. Have I given my life to God this week? And if I haven't, to beg God to give me the grace so I can do so. All right. And if he, I'm, I, I'm sorry, I quoted Corinthians chapter 13, verse 3. I, I glanced a little further. Later on, in Ephesians 5, 2, St. Paul says, Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. A soothing aroma, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. So the purpose of the sacrificial system is to prepare them to recognize Christ. That's what the purpose of it. And we said the Ola points to the sacrifice of the cross. It points to the baptism of repentance and offering of self to Christ. The Shelamim points to the multiplication of bread and the Passover meal Christ celebrates with the twelve. But it also prefigures the Mass more accurately. Once St. Teresa was overwhelmed with God's goodness and asked our Lord, How can I thank you? Our Lord replied, Attend one Mass. The Ola has been substituted by baptism. The minha has become the presentation and the shelamim, the Eucharistic meal. So the entire Levitical system has been subsumed by the Mass and it is still present in the Mass. All right. Let's look now at chapter 10 of the letter of the Hebrews. Because I want to show you how that language of Leviticus permeates the thinking of the New Testament. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never be 
It can never, by the same sacrifice, sacrifices which are continually offered year after year, make perfect those who draw near. He's basically saying what we already know. The sacrifice of Leviticus cannot perfect you. Right? It, it's not a life of grace. You cannot be perfected by those sacrifices. Right? If the worshippers had once been cleansed, if they would no longer have any consciousness of sin. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sin year after year. For it is impossible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sins. Which is something we already know. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings, though has not prepared for me, but a body has thou prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, thou hast no pleasure. Then I said, Lo, I have come to do thy will, O God, as it is written of me in the roll of the book. As it is written of me in the roll of the book. So Leviticus is written about Christ. I have come to do your will. You've prepared a body for me. That body is the church. Before the foundation of the world, God has been preparing the church, the body of Christ, the one to whom he gives his life. When he said above, thou hast neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, the one we just talked about, then he added, lo, I have come to do thy will. So what is being contrasted here? The sacrifices of the Old Testament and doing God's will. What is the implication? Can't do both. You're close. What is the implication about those who were offering those sacrifices in Leviticus? They are just the negation of what we heard. Not doing God's will. That's the surprising thing about the whole law in Leviticus. It is not a law according to God's will. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. By the way, when he say for all time, or when he say once and for all, the implication isn't that that sacrifice happened once, then has been removed from the world. What is meant, in the context of the reading, if you read carefully, is this. Christ's sacrifice has been offered for all sins. That's what is meant. Not, as sometimes the Protestant would interpret this to mean, that it was offered and was removed and that's it. Now we are no connection to it. That's a false interpretation. It has offered to cover all sins. Therefore, in order to cover all sins, it must be made present before those sins so it can actually redeem them. Hence, the perpetual sacrifice of the Mass, which makes present the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after saying, This is the covenant I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. What is that contrasting? What is, this is in contrast to what? Yes. The Ten Commandments. Why is it a contrast to the Ten Commandments? Exactly. God wrote the Ten Commandments in stone to indicate that the heart of man 
is as hard as stone. In fact, no, stone is softer. He can write it on the stone, but not in their hearts. And it's only when the life of grace flows that the law can now be written in your heart. Now let's think about that for a second. I will write my law. Which law? Which law? My law. Which law? Is it the one that we receive in Leviticus? Is it the one we receive in Deuteronomy? I will write my law, my law, in their heart. It is the Ten Commandments, right? It is the Ten Commandments that he will write on hearts of flesh. It is the beatitude. It is the love of Christ, right? Let me ask you this other question now. See, here's the unfortunate thing about our, to a certain degree, our time. When we say, I will write, what image comes into your mind? Tell me, what, what image does, does that conjure in your head when I say, I will write? Pardon? Okay, but I mean, just think about the, the writing itself. How do, you, how do you see that happen? Yes. Pencil and paper. Pen and paper. Very good. And? I'm sorry? Can you use email? Right? Yeah, he didn't say I will text, but... Right? But I will write. How long does it take to write the Ten Commandments? Five minutes, right? See, that's the trick. That's when we get tricked. I write the law. It's like, oh my God, you know, stamp. Five minutes later, it's written. But the truth is very different. When we are born, what kind of heart do we have? Well, it's innocent from personal sin. Yes. Agreed. But what kind of heart is it? Pure. From personal sin. Yes. So what is a heart darkened by original sin? It's a heart of stone. That's what we're born with. I already told you before. A baby is a spiritual freak. Grace is missing from the heart of a child. It is only when baptism happens that that grace restores the child to his original self, to who he's supposed to be. Yeah? But then what happens as we grow up? We harden our hearts, don't we? We don't want to forgive. We get resentful. We can be spiteful. We can be jealous. We can be uh, envious. What? Selfish. What are those things doing to our heart? Hardening it. So, is God writing His law on our heart a matter of an hour? It's a matter of a lifetime. It's a matter of our lifetime. And here's the thing. Who's doing the writing? We. Most of the time. Yes. So what are we doing on our heart? Yeah, we can be erasing or scribbling stuff. That, has not, that have nothing to do with God's will for us. Why? Because we're taking action. Yeah? But that's what I'm saying. We're taking action. We have a freedom. Yeah, we have freedom to mess it up. Royally, sometimes. Yeah? Yes. Rather, after when Christ came, He opened the gates of heaven, allows grace to flow back, and gave us the sacraments by which means we're able now to receive the life of grace and live by it. Right? I will write my law. Yeah. Not a... doesn't happen 
in a second. It's a work of a lifetime. Yes. The church says that at age seven, on average, you would have reached the age of reason, meaning you're able to tell when something is wrong. Correct. The age of conscience is when you can determine that. But before reaching that age, if you have not, if you do not have good parents, you're being trained in vice. When you allow a kid to become spoiled, you're training that child in vice. And the vice flowers into sin. You don't need reason to be trained in vice. Because number one, our fallen nature tends naturally towards vice. Right? We find the path of virtue arduous. We find the path of vice uh, pleasant. And if you don't have the proper education and formation, since you're much younger than seven, then by the time you reach seven, you're being trained really in vice. So yes, the consciousness, the understanding of the act may start at seven, but it does not mean that the sinful act, objectively speaking, starts at seven can start much earlier. Yeah? All right. Now, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Hearts and minds. Right? Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their misdeeds no more. This is one of the bases why we say if you go to confession, and you go to confession regularly, those sins that you confess, God will remember no more. So at the final judgment where all the sins are made known to everyone, which is part of God's justice to His church, those sins are not remembered anymore. So avail yourself of the graces that flow in the sacrament of reconciliation. It isn't just for mortal sins. The sacrament of reconciliation was established by God as a tribunal of mercy, where he pours his grace in your heart because when you go to confession, whether it's venial or mortal, you are doing a great sacrifice of thanksgiving. You're saying to God, I'm humbling myself before you. I recognize that I'm a sinner and I recognize I'm in need of your mercy. You're doing those three things we talked about. And don't take it from me, take it from John Paul II. Every week you went to confession. So work towards that goal because it's a wonderful, wonderful Sacrament that God had made available to us. All right. I will remember the sins. Okay. When there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Hence, the offering that has to remain in our heart is that of thanksgiving. That one will always remain. You may do penance for your sins once after confession. But there is no limit for the sacrifice of thanksgiving that you may do for God. To say thank you. Is that, so far from what you've seen in Leviticus, and we're going to continue when we hit the rite of expiation, is that the mindset in Leviticus? Is the mindset to offer God a sacrifice of thanksgiving? Is that where they are at? No. The first sacrifice, the Holocaust, is what? It's a, it's a sacrifice to stay God's wrath. That's it. Do you see the contrast? Because that's what I want to make you more aware of. That contrast. It is just to stay God's wrath. And if you commit a sin under the law of Leviticus, what must you do? 
If you've committed a sin and you got caught, what must you do? What is the only possible outcome? You pay for it. There is no other outcome. Why is God doing that? Why is God doing that? Why is He giving them this whole ritual? Why? Doesn't it sound unjust? Why is God doing that? All right. Moving along. I want to bring to your attention another part of the gospel this time. The gospel of St. Mark, chapter 3, verse 1 through 6. Again, he entered the synagogue, he being Christ. And a man was there who had a withered hand. Whatever withered hand means, I don't know exactly what a medical condition is. must have been very painful. Plus, having a withered hand means what? You can't work. Can't feed yourself. Yeah? And they watched him, the Pharisees watched him, to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath. Here we go again. So they might, so they might accuse him. Okay, here's the question. Are they justified in accusing him? According to the law. Yes. Yes. The law... That God gave them. Yes? Mm. And he said to the man who had the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, now listen carefully to the question. Actually, before I read it to you, what do you think Jesus is going to ask them? He's going to ask them a question. What do you think the question is? The the Pharisee squad standing right there. He's going to ask them a question. What do you think the question is? Is it right to heal on the Sabbath, right? When you get to this point, you think that's the question, logically speaking, right? That's not what he asks. Pay attention to the question that Jesus has very profound and go, goes to the root of the whole Levitical system. Is it lawful on a Sabbath to do good or to harm? To save life or to kill? Not the question you'd expect. You'd think, like Steve said, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? That would be logical. But that's not what Jesus asks. Is it lawful on a Sabbath to do good or to harm, to save life or to kill? Now, the gospel gives us a first answer. It's a surface level answer. The gospel of St. Mark is full of irony, and you can see the irony right now. <clears throat> but they were silent. And he looked around and at them with anger, grieved, grieved, at their hardness of heart. Hmm? And said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched, out, he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately had counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. Now, do you see the irony? The words of Jesus were effectively prophetic, because he just asked them, is it lawful to do good or to harm, to save a life or to kill? And then what did Jesus do? What was the work that he did? He spoke. Stretch out your hand. Very good. Now, what did those guys do? They went out and held counsel. So what did they do? They spoke. About what? How to kill him. So on that surface, you see right away what Jesus is about. Right? Is it lawful to do good, which is what I'm about to do? 
save a life, which is what I'm about to do, or to harm, which is what you're planning to do, and kill. But they didn't kill on the Sabbath, right? Jesus was not killed on the Sabbath. So what this killing that he's referring to, what was killed on the Sabbath? Go back to Psalm 50. What was being constantly killed on the Sabbath? The animals. The constant sacrifice. Now when he says, is it lawful? Which law is he making reference to? That's the key. Yeah, I mean the Ten Commandments. Not Leviticus. That's what they're missing. That's what they're missing. When he says it is lawful... He's not implying just the law of Leviticus and Deuteronomy. He's implying the divine law. So then, what is Leviticus then? So far, from what we've seen, it's not a law that gives you life. It's a law that requires you to offer sacrifice just to stay God's wrath. It's a law that requires you to offer sacrifice only for those things that you've done out of ignorance or by accident, not for any premeditated sin, why would God give them such a law? In fact, in Ezekiel, he explicitly told Ezekiel, who was the only prophet priest, I gave them a law by which they could not live. Why would he do such a thing? Because God is sadistic. Why? Hold on, hold on. I want you to just think about it. Now, one more word from Jesus I want to point out to you. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to harm? Okay, to do good. It's really ironic. Who can do good? So if God is the only one who can really do good, and those who are really truly joined to Him, what do we do? What do we do? Evil. See, that's the part that we don't like. Now, I'm not saying this. The gospel says that. Here. <clears throat> Give you a few examples. Gospel St. Matthew, chapter 3, verse 7 and 8. But when he, St. John the Baptist, saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, Welcome, brothers. No, you brood of vipers. Right? So a viper is what? It's a serpent. A serpent represents what? The devil. You brood of the devil. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit that befits repentance. So what is he saying about our nature, about us? This is not the Pharisees. How many of you actually look yourself in the mirror in the morning and say, I am a brood of viper? Have you ever tried that? Try it once. See how you react. Kind of give us a little bit of a hint about our own hidden pride. St. Matthew, chapter 12, verse 38, 39. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. An evil. That's Jesus speaking. If he said that about them, what would he say about us? Okay. Let's keep on going. St. John, chapter 15, verse 5 through 8. I am the vine, you are the branches. 
He who abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Okay, now hold on. Nothing. just want you to focus on that word for a second. Because we understand nothing as neutral. I can do nothing. Here I am. I can do nothing. I can breathe. I can do nothing. That's good. But let me just ask you this question. What is the definition of sin? The absence of good. So is sin a thing? Is it a thing? Does it substantially exist? No. There's no substance to sin. Sin is the absence of good. It's a what? It's a nothing. So when, God, when Jesus says, apart from me, you can do... Yeah. You get it now? He's not saying, with me you can do something good, but without me you're neutral. You're going to stuck. No. Hell, in essence, hell is what? It is the inexistent existence. If God says, I am that I am, Satan responds, I am that I am not. A contradiction. He exists without existing. If heaven is the fulfillment of love, hell is the abyss of hatred. Because there is nothing. Apart from me, you can do nothing. So, what is Leviticus about then? Let's keep on going a little bit more. St. Luke 3.16 I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The thong of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. And he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Right? So, here he is establishing a foundation for our existence. Baptism. We are the branches in the vine. A branch doesn't make a decision. A branch is not independent. A branch doesn't exist on its own. A branch doesn't have a life of its own. A branch completely depends on the vine in everything and in every way. And we are grafted onto the, the vine when we are baptized. But there is something peculiar that St. Saint, Saint John the Baptist says which is going to tie the whole thing together. I, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Now, the Holy Spirit, we get that. What is this business of fire? What does it mean when he says, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire? Any takers? Power. Okay? Fire of his love. Fire of the sacrifice. We're getting a lot closer. Purification. Suffering. But let's put it really in context. So the fathers of the church, and this is taken from a reflection that I receive uh, monthly from, the, uh, from a monastery up in uh, Petersham in Massachusetts called the Maryland Monks of the Adoration. And I'll be going there in October for a five-day retreat. There are some among you who are willing to do the trek, fly, let me know. We can organize a real retreat then. It's for men. Five days. It'll be the retreat of your life, I can assure you. Anyway, we can talk about that later. 
The fathers of the church explained the, the phrase baptism of the Holy Spirit by pointing out, that, pointing out that John the Baptist used this expression because he wanted to distinguish the baptism that Christ was going to bring from the baptism he was giving. If he had said he would baptize you with water, then no one would have understood what he was talking about because he's baptizing with water. And what about Jesus? He's baptizing with water. What's the difference? So therefore, he insists on the supernatural uh, aspect of the, the baptism of Jesus Christ by saying he baptized you with the Holy Spirit. Even though what we see is water. So far, so good. The fathers in St. Thomas gives various interpretation, but the one that stands the most, I'm sorry, my, my pages are jumping. Okay. Is that this fire is the fire of trial and temptations. So you're baptized with two things. You're baptized with the Holy Spirit. You're then baptized with trials and temptations. What does it say about your baptism? It isn't just a one moment in time. In fact, Pope Benedict XVI, in his reflection on baptism, makes it amply clear that the reason why we can baptize adults after they've been catechized and that we can baptize babies before they're catechized is because catechism is an integral part of baptism. The two are not separate, and one either follow or proceeds. Okay? So it's a duty of parents who have their kids baptized to teach them the faith. But baptism is something that, that lives in you, back to what we were saying earlier, God writes on your heart throughout your lifetime by trial and temptations. Okay. So for instance, we know that the passage through the Red Sea is a prefigurement a prefiguration of baptism. Right? St. Augustine speaks of it this way. When they went in the water and they came back out, they went back to life. Whereas the Egyptians drowned in that water, meaning the water of baptism kills sin and allows us to live. But then when they were baptized, where did they go to? Did they go straight into the promised land? No. They went into the wilderness where they were tested for 40 years. That imagery of being tested for 40 years is an image of our own life. After baptism, we shouldn't be expected, expecting roses. We should be expecting, realistically, trials and temptation. Now, all the three synoptic gospels speak to us about the baptism of Christ. And all three relate the same thing. After Christ is baptized in the Jordan, what happens next? He's led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted. St. Peter writes to the new Christians, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal which comes upon you to prove you as though something strange were happening to you. As though something strange was happening to you. You might be a little bit irritated. right? As though something... Like, Why are you surprised? That's in the first letter of Peter, verse 4.12. So, St. Peter tells the faithful not to be surprised that the fear or deal comes upon them because they and we often are surprised. Why me? Now, we do have a tendency to make false judgments about God and how he works in our lives. When everything is going fine, more or less, and there is sunshine and smooth sailing, we assume that God is looking favorably upon us and all that is well between us and God. The gospel of health and wealth. right? But then along comes some serious temptations or trials, whatever form they take, and they can take all different 
forms, interior or exterior, and we think that God has abandoned us. We have a hard time believing, accepting that these troubles also come from the hand of God. And that is exactly where the Israelites are in Leviticus. Leviticus is bound to Exodus. All through Exodus, they kept murmuring against God, kept complaining. Wish we were in Egypt with our pots and pans and onions and fish. Right? So God gave them a law by which they could not live. And he can do that to us as well. We'll see why. Pardon? Well, you know what? You're right. It might sting, but it might sting a lot less than hell. So, if we don't see our trials as coming from God, we may fail to recognize how he is trying to work in our lives. The means he's using to try to get through to us, to try to help us to grow in grace. But if we're honest to ourselves, a little reflection shows that our trials can serve many purposes. Who of us isn't in a danger of settling down into a mediocre life of self-complacency? I got my routine, I got my work, I got my stuff, and I'm, everything's hunky-dory. I'm putting up with stuff, and that's it. Or falling away from the high idea of our calling. It's quite easy to become accustomed to a life of little infidelities in our way of life to a life comfortable compromise. Unless there's some stimulus to arouse us. Right? We're, I think we've all been there. And then there is the whole matter of self-deception. Thinking that we are someone who we are not. Self-deception is much easier for the man who has no trials or serious temptations. We assume that we have certain virtues. And then along comes some trouble or temptation. And we find that we don't really possess those virtues after all. Been there, done that. A person who is truly humble will welcome that kind of self-knowledge. It won't upset his peace of soul. Yeah, well, God, what do you expect? It's just me, right? We're going to come back to this. Remember what I told you earlier? The biggest trouble is that we don't call on God enough. You'll see why in a minute. We do have a tendency to make false judgments. Okay, sorry. My, this is jumping all over the place, so bear with me. So now I'm going to give you an example taken by that or life of a priest who is now a servant of God. If you haven't read this book, I really encourage you to read it. And it's called, He Leadeth Me. He Leadeth Me. He Leadeth Me. And it's the life of Father Walter Shizek. I'm probably saying his name wrong. C-I-S-Z-E-K. C-I-S-Z-E-K. K. K-E-K. What can I say? That's it. Yes. Polish. Exactly. Father Chizek was an American Jesuit who went into Russia during World War II in order to serve the Christians there under the communist regime. He went in secretly and was ministering to them. And then what happened is that while he was there ministering to them, he was caught and sent to the infamous Lubyanka prison. The Soviets put him in solitary confinement and they spent a year brutally interrogating him. He spent seven years in solitary confinement. Seven. They wanted him to confess that he was a Vatican spy. That's what he wanted. Father Shizek had a strong character and a strong will, and he resisted for a long time, all the while continuing his, his spiritual exercises and asking God for help. But finally, after months of interrogation and torture, he was overcome, and in a moment of fear and exhaustion, he signed a document stating he was a spy from the Vatican. Afterwards, back in his cell, Father Chizek reproached God for not supporting him. None of us has ever done that, right? 
Only Father Chizak. We've never done any of this. For not supporting him and coming to his aid when he needed him. How could God let him down, allow him to fail, allow him to betray his calling, and do something which could harm the reputation of the priesthood and the church? How could God allow this priest, who was a really good priest, do the thing that is contrary to the good of the church? How could God give the Israelites the law of Leviticus? And then God gave him the light to see that, in fact, all along, he had been relying on his own resources and strength of will. And that he had never really fully placed his hope and trust in God alone. Many years later, Father Chizak wrote of the experience. He said, it was not the church that was on trial in Lubyanka. It was not the Soviet government or the KGB versus Walter Chizak. It was God versus Walter Chizak. Father Chizak understood that in everything he was doing, he was in conversation with God, except that God was trying to talk to him and Father Chizak was listening to himself talk. And of course, none of us here do that. Only Father Chizak. None of us is too busy listening to our self-talk, organizing God's calendar, filling his day with action items, telling him what we want to have done, how it must be done, when it must be done. We don't do that. Notice how subtle this was. Father Chizak was doing the right thing. He was baptizing Christians. He was serving them. He was doing all those things in Russia under the communists. He was fighting them. When they caught him, they wanted him to sign for a lie. He fought them. He resisted. He did everything a hero is supposed to do. And he was dead wrong. God was testing me. This is him speaking. By this experience, like gold in the furnace, to see how much of self remained after all my prayers and professions of faith in his will. In that one year of interrogations, after these last terrible few hours, the primacy of self, the primacy of self, I come before God, that had manifested itself and been reinforcing itself, even in my methods of prayer, See how subtle we are? Even in my methods of prayer and spiritual exercises underwent a purging through purgatory that left me cleansed to the bone. He's now a servant of God. In the garden, I'm going to close with this reflection because it ties it all together back to what Father Shizak was saying. In the garden, when Adam was alone, God, after the whole creation, when God said, it is, God created and was good. It 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 was very good. Yeah? Then God seemed to come back on his word, contradicting himself. Because he says, it is not good for man to live alone. Well, God, make up your mind. Is it good or is it not good? Why did God say that? Before we answer this question, if God said it is not good that man, for man to be alone, Is that objectively true? That it's not good for men to be alone? Yes? Okay. Therefore, Adam was alone. If it's not good for Adam to be alone, Adam must have felt it as not good. He was not good. Meaning, not morally bad, but he wasn't happy. Yeah? 
He wasn't happy. Yeah, he wasn't happy. What is missing from this picture? Psalm 50. Call on me in the days of trouble. Father Chizak did not call on God in the days of trouble. He thought he was. He was deceiving himself. Why didn't Adam go to God and say, uh, Lord, I don't know what it is, but something is missing. Adam could not have conceived of Eve. He could not have put his finger on it. He didn't even know what the problem was. But he knew there was a problem because God said so. What did Adam do? Kept it to himself. My friends, this is why God gave them Leviticus. Leviticus is to Israel what the garden is to Adam. And the church is to Israel what Eve is to Adam. It is the thing that made him, not the thing, the person that made him good. God did not, God could have created Adam and Eve together, right there, on the spot. Poof! Here they are. And he could have actually created them straight out with 12 kids. Save Eve some trouble. Why didn't he do that? Why did he delay the creation of Eve? Why didn't he give Adam the thing that was very good? Why did he give Israel Leviticus? No, not to test. To appreciate. Make them holy. Yes! Call on me in the days of trouble. No, Lord. I'm not. And here, my friends, we fall into one of two traps. First one, sufficiency. I'm fine. Things fine. I'm good. Whether it's my life of prayer, I got it organized. I'm saying my rosary is going to Mass. And I see not a, quite a, not a, not a few women who fall into that trap. Rosaries and petitions and daily Mass and this and then the other. And say a, a one word to them the wrong way and see how they react. No working on their moral virtue. None. Right? They're doing everything they're right. Boom, 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 boom. Okay? Self-sufficiency. That's one. The other one, which is also dangerous, is this. We become conscious, con- conscientious of our sins. We see ourselves as sinful, and what do we do? We hide our face from God. Because how can I, who is sinful, go ask the one who is crucified for my sins to help me even more? How can I ask him for his help when I am increasing his pain and his wounds? How can I really go to him and say, help me, when I am the executioner? On the surface, it sounds like a really good question. It sounds virtuous. It sounds righteous. And it is wrong. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Therefore, even the thought that you have in mind, that you look at the crucifix and you say, how can I even go and ask you? That, is, that thought itself is coming from God. You don't own it. So self-righteousness, self-deprecation. Same side of the same metal. We lose on both, on both ends. He, he, he gave them Leviticus so that they could ask. Did they? Oh no, they got really good at it. 
Here's the sacrifices, and this is what the law says, and we're going to do this, and we'll turn them into 660 laws, and we'll follow all of them, and we're righteous. No, 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 they cannot pay for it. They, they, they cannot pay for it. But in their mind, they've never done it. They are righteous. We fall in the same trap daily. We fall back into Leviticus. We treat the Mass as if it was the ritual of Leviticus. The Mass is not permeating our lives. Our life has not become the Mass. We don't think this is the highest priority, the thing that we should constantly be focused on above everything else. That's the meaning of Leviticus. It is a way of saying, it's like you're going to a place and you get there and you're supposed to see a beautiful woman or a beautiful man, your husband or your wife. And you get there and it's empty. Leviticus has this tone of emptiness to it precisely because God is waiting for us to call on Him in a day's trouble. I know I took longer than an hour, and I apologize, but I thought it was important to wrap it in the New Testament before we proceed further along the road so that by way of negation, we can learn from Leviticus what we're supposed to do. Yes? So we'll finish with the word of prayer, and then we, we can take some questions. Questions? Yes, so in 6 and 7, there may be some situations that might lead you to think that it is intentional, but in fact, the whole tone is, you didn't know. So for instance, you uh, perjured yourself, but you didn't really know you were doing it then it's okay. But if you did it with knowledge, you will see later you're liable. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah, no, there is absolutely nothing in Leviticus that can redeem you from a personal vicious act. Nothing. It's really hard to conceive for us who've been, you know, who've, who've, been, who've grown with the mercy of God. How could that be? But in truth, even for us, God treats us this way sometimes, either because we are already on our way, we've really deepened our spiritual life, He's taking us to the next level, right? He does that to His friends, those whom we love, the closest ones, or really far from Him and He's calling us back. Yes, Himself, without them calling, because He loves us. You see, just as in Adam, as in the case of Adam, God, even though Adam did not call, God didn't punish him. He gave him still what he needed. And even when he did that, Adam didn't turn around and say, thank you, Lord. Right? He didn't. And so, likewise, in the case of Israel and of humanity, God sends his only son. Nobody asked. Obviously, he couldn't ask for this. But very few asked for God's grace. One of the shining examples, one of the few, is the book of Daniel. The book of Daniel begins with, Lord, we have sinned before your face. Daniel doesn't complain that God sent them into exile. He doesn't say to God, how come you sent us into exile? He falls on his knees and begs for the forgiveness for his people and his own sins. Job is another example. Gets up every morning and offers sacrifices just in case his children would have sinned. How many of us in the morning get up and the thought that comes to mind is, Lord, I'll offer you sacrifices today for any sins that my children have committed. Those examples are before us. 
but we don't avail ourselves from them, not as much as we should. So they are present in Scripture, but overall the people as such, yes, yes, absolutely. Simeon was precisely in the temple in prayer and wanted to see God's salvation. And God comforted him in showing him the child. It's so rare, actually. Very few have had that, that um, joy and that comfort. The prophets, most of them, have had vision. St. John the Baptist have had the, the vision to see Jesus as the Son of God. Right? All those who are close to God end up being comforted. Because the Holy Spirit is the comforter. But we must not put um, obstacles in our ways. Look at Father Chizek. When he had actually failed, when it was a complete defeat, then he was comforted. God didn't leave him alone. And he spent 25 years in Russia, by the way. 25 years in Russia, in uh, Siberia. In a prison in Siberia. And there, he would offer Mass whenever he could. And the Catholic men with him would not eat all day sometimes, doing hard labor because they were waiting to receive the Eucharist. Yes. Are you talking about the Jubilee year? When, yeah, the Jubilee year, every 50 years, which is the, the year that comes after the 7th, 7th, right? 49 years on the 50th year, the Jubilee, if you had a debt towards your brother, financial, it was gone. If you lost your land, you could recover it. No, 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 no. The 50th year. Okay? On the 50th year, you could actually get all that back, the Jubilee year. But that was physical, right? It, nothing. No. No. That's why, that's exactly why Jesus said of St. John the Baptist, he's the greatest of all prophets, but the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Why? Because he has no, he's not part of the life of grace while he was alive. Right? Now he's in heaven, that's a completely different story. Right? We're not going to say, oh, yeah, St. John the Baptist, I'm greater than you. Well, not going to work. Right? So, but that's why. Yes. Well, he had a reason. Jonah had a reason, though. I mean, you could understand why he did that, because Jonah was a very pious and very smart man. When God told him, go to Nineveh, he, being from the northern kingdom of Israel, understood what God wanted to do. Go to the Nineveh, and then you prophesy, then God will give him the grace to repent from their sins so he will not destroy Nineveh, then he will use Nineveh, because Jonah was aware of the other pro- prophecies, to come down and destroy Israel. Well, what is a prophet to do in that case? He says, God says, go to Nineveh. Jonah goes to Spain. <laughs> so Nineveh is in Iraq. He goes exactly the opposite direction. Well, God throws him into the belly of the whale. It takes him three days of saying, all right, fine, I'll do it. And he goes to Nineveh, and he was supposed to preach for three days. He only preaches for one day. And then when he sees God's grace working, he gets upset. It's a perfect good example, a good book to, that mirrors our own life. We typically are like that. What do you mean you elected that president who is not pro-life? The end of America is coming. How could you allow this to happen? Right? I'm going to go throw myself in the belly of the whale. Wait for four years and maybe, God, you'll do the right thing then. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. Yes. It's, it's in the catechism. The, the catechism speaks about how we're supposed to keep the Sabbath holy. What do we do on Sunday? 
we can keep it at, you know, we, there's a couple of very basic rules. Number one, you go to Mass, obviously. It's a celebration. Number two, you avoid from any, you, 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 you do not perform any hard labor. Now, people will say, come up with excuses, but I have to work, I have a life, I have to do this, then the other. Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Oh, no, 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 I'm not, I've got my things to do. Right? Number three, most of us are not doing hard labor on Sunday, most of us, but we do hard chopping. You can avoid that. Yeah, you can avoid hard chopping on Sunday. Doing your laundry, doing, cleaning your house. It should be focused on God and on family. And obviously, acts of charity, acts of mercy. You, can, you have friends over. You have people come over. You serve them. That's a good thing to do on Sunday. Right? Yes. So the question is, it's a really good question, because in most churches you have, after Mass, they offer some refreshment. Right? In this case, we can, we can look at it this way. Number one, the Mass is a celebration, and if afterwards there is meal being offered, it is continuation of that celebration. You're celebrating, right? Jesus celebrated with his disciples. And the money you're offering goes to the church. Therefore, it is not really a mercantile operation. You're, they're not there doing it to make a buck. It's not for profit. It's a non-profit activity, right? Very different than if you decided to do something with that money on that day that, that is for profit. Yes. Yes, I would say, I would say so. It is... It is it is allowed as long as, again, we don't make these things the focus of the parish. My, my larger concern usually isn't so much with these small things, but when within a parish it becomes almost like a business overall. We're focused on activities that bring money more than we are focused on where the souls need to be. And, and that can be a very fine line. Now, I'm not a priest, therefore I can't, I can't speak for one. I don't know what would I do if I were a priest. But it's something to really think about. And therefore, in all your activities on Sunday, it is something to really think about. Do it mindful of the day. Be mindful of the day when you're performing any of those operations. Yes. Correct. Remember, the day was from sundown to sun... The night was from... The day from sun, sunrise to sundown, right? So really, as soon as it's sundown... Sunday has started. That's why it is lawful to have Mass on Saturday evening. Uh, and it's, it's a long-standing tradition in the church. This is not a novelty. Having said that, if you decide to go to celebrate Mass on Saturday, right, it better not be because you want to do hard labor on Sunday or because you want to do hard shopping in the morning or any of this. right? It's, you still have to live the whole day as a celebration so if you're a student, a great sacrifice is to set aside your studies on Sunday. I remember doing it, and it was hard for me. Whether I was doing my joint honors in computer science and math, and I was working 20 hours, or whether I was doing my master's or my PhD, it was tough. And I didn't go through it all the, way, all the time. But set that aside. It's a sacrifice of thanksgiving. It's a, it, yes, you start to think about it at night. Thank you. God bless you. We hope you've enjoyed this talk from Corbono. For more information about this and other talks, 
please visit our website at www.carbono.com. Thank you and God bless you.